Turn your Bible to Philippians, the fourth chapter. Uh, we're going to be uh, continuing with our sermon theme uh, for this particular month, or picking it up, I suppose, which we're finally getting around to it in terms of the month of October. Uh, so I would like you to begin with, read with me a passage from Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Take a couple minutes uh, and look at these verses. What we're going to be talking about this morning is thinking. Uh, Do you think much? There are times when people I, told me that I'm not thinking enough, but when you put it down in terms of the, the scientific aspect of it, we do a great deal of thinking. Uh, Mark Twain once said that a person's life, real life, is led in his head and is known to none other but himself. He went on to comment about that and said that uh, the, a person's life in terms of uh, what he does every day is not really determined by what uh, he actually does his actions, nor even can it be defined uh, in the aspect of um, what he sees around him. But rather, it's the long grinding aspect of his thoughts. He says, all day long the mill of his brain is grinding at his thoughts, not those other things are his history. It's a fascinating thought, I suppose, that our thinking is really who we are. If we could open someone's brain and take out a tape and uh, recording and play back all of their thoughts, we'd have a pretty good uh, perspective of who they are. I don't want you to do that for me. I'd rather (laughs) keep some of those things to myself. But if you did that, you'd have a much better perception of who a person is than just by looking at what they do um, or the association that you have. So our thinking really predominates uh, our life. Uh, Scientifically, what they've discovered, at least what I've can, can, under, can understand is the average person has about 10,000 separate thoughts each day. That works out to be about three and a half million thoughts a year. And so if you live to be 75 years old, and maybe some of you are beyond that already, you will in your lifetime have had over 26 million different thoughts enter your brain. And when we think about that from the standpoint of our whole life, that's pretty powerful. But you think about every day that already, you have already had 2,000 thoughts since you got up this morning. And if you continue on in the way that people, the, the scientists say that we are, you'll have another 8,000 thoughts before you go to bed tonight. So 10,000 thoughts a day. What are you going to do with all of that? All of that thinking. Well, what I want to suggest to you this morning as we look at this particular passage and try to make application is that If we think about thinking, if we put our thoughts on our thoughts, what we recognize is that each one of those thoughts is a choice in the sense that we decide what we will think about. We will decide what we will put our minds on. Thinking is not just an automatic, you see, uh, element of what we do. That It's not something that just happens to us. We decide that we will think. We learn to think. We modify our thinking. We direct our thinking and focus our attention. So every one of those 10,000 thoughts, if it's broken down, becomes a choice. And Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, what Paul is saying to us here in this passage, at least what I'm going to affirm that he's saying, is that God expects us to control our thinking. That God expects us 
to have dominion over our thoughts and to control what we think about. In fact, verse 8 is really a command, is it not? He says, meditate on these things, or some translations say, think on these things. I want to explore the application of that and the meaning of that particular command. But first consider the context. Because any passage of Scripture needs to be understood in the context. And I think there are some problems that come as a result of this, that come to people as a result of not considering the context. But we've noticed that Paul began this chapter by telling Christians to rejoice, to be happy, to be fulfilled. And that in the context of telling them to rejoice, he commanded them to pray. He says, let your requests be made known to God in verse 6. And then twice in this context, he has mentioned the aspect of peace. In verse 6, he says, let your requests be made known to God. And then promises that the peace of God, the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts. And then in verse 8, he calls on us in this passage to think on certain things. Put these things into your mind and then... He says that the God of peace will be with you at the end of verse 9. So he mentions peace twice. He mentions joy. And he talks about in the passage that follow this, in his own example, the fruit of contentment. And I think it's important for us to consider that context. Because when we think about thinking, when we're going to discuss the aspect of controlling our thoughts, understand that what Paul, where Paul is discussing this aspect of being in dominion of our thinking is, is in the context of our Emotional well-being, that joy and peace and contentment, those things that we seek in life that make, you see, life fulfilled and that give us, you see, a sense that we are living a life that is meaningful, is associated with our ability and our willingness to control our thinking. So thinking on the right things produces good things in our life, things that we desire. It's a key ingredient to living a life of joy and peace and contentment. And as he mentions here, also consists in obedience because he says, I want you to do the things that you see being done in me. And he talks about obedience. So go back to the passage and think when he says think on these things and understand that Paul is teaching us about the importance of controlling our thinking. But there's a, there's a great deal, I think, of misunderstanding on this passage. So before we talk about what it is, let me mention you what I believe that it is not saying. What Paul is not teaching here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 is what sometimes is called the power of positive thinking. One popular interpretation of this verse is that Paul is telling us in this passage that you just need to think on positive things and get rid of all of that negative thinking, and that's really what Paul has in mind here. That there's a lot of negative thinking that goes on out there. There's a lot of people that are negative in their life and always look on the wrong side of things or look on the negative side of things. We need to get rid of all of that. That we could just think positively about everything in life and positive about every people, about all the people in our life, that things would go better for us. And that particular teaching has been adopted into religious circles over the past generations. I think that uh, it was developed probably mo most popularized by Norman Vincent Peale and more recent times by Peale's protege Robert Schuller, at least in religious circles. And basically, through their influence, what people have come to, I think, believe and teach in religious teaching is that anything that's negative ought to be expelled. That any thinking that's negative ought to, be, ought to be gotten rid of in our thinking, that we need to think simply on those things that are positive. And that False teaching of positive thinking, that heresy, I think, that's revolved sometimes around this particular passage, has spawned other false teachings, 
positive confession heresy, also called the health and wealth doctrine of today or the name it and claim it teaching. But whatever you want in life, you simply have to positively claim it. And redefining faith is simply saying something positive about your life that you want. And if you, if you name it, then you can claim it and whatever you believe you can achieve and that that's what faith is and that's what God wants from it. So that if I look at the problems of life and I try to dissect them or try to understand them, well, I have to realize that they're just the fruit of negative thinking. That's the reason these things happen is because I'm not being positive enough in my thinking and therefore get rid of all of that negativism. If you are sick, you simply affirm that you're well and you will be well. The Christian is never to entertain a negative thought. But to talk to himself about things that are positive and visualize those things and they will become a reality. That's not what Paul's teaching here. And I think we look at what the rest of the scriptures teach about us, we recognize there is a whole lot that that particular doctrine contradicts about what God says about faith. The faith true power of faith, and faith is intrinsically powerful in the Christian life, is not rooted in my ability to believe it, nor in my positive attitude towards what I do believe, but rather my faith and the power of my faith is rooted in the power of God. Things can be accomplished when I put my faith in God, not because of how I approach them or who I am, but rather because of who God is and my willingness to claim His power as well. So go back to the passage, what is Paul teaching? In Philippians 4, verse 8. Well, although Paul does not specifically mention Scripture in this particular text, the position on this text that I think is absolutely essential to take is that he's undergirding everything he says on the basis that God has revealed his will. And the adjectives that he employs here, we're going to look at those adjectives, about what I should think on, point directly to the revelation and the character of God. That when Paul says that I, should teach, that I should put my mind on things that are noble, when he says I should put my mind on things that are lovely, that I should put my mind on things that are true, he's referencing not the things I see with my eyes around me that I determine are, are, are lovely or true, but rather the things that God has revealed to me in that context. How can I know what is true and what is honorable, what is right and what is pure and what is lovely and what is virtuous, what is of good report, except that God has revealed those things to me in Revelation. So that's the position, I think, that must be taken in this particular passage. When I talk about putting my mind on something or putting, meditating upon something. But Paul's use of the terminology here as well is insightful because he uses a passage, logic zomehi, which means to take inventory. Sometimes it's translated by the word meditate, other words, other times translated by the word to think, or the verb to think on. It means to estimate something, or to put it into your calculations, to ponder on it, and to think on it. But it's not used in the context in the scriptures of of estimating or calculating figures or numbers, but rather the aspect of ideas. One source says that this verb means to give ideas weight in your decisions. That is to allow ideas to shape your conduct. That what you put your mind on, then, is not just something that you come to understand for the sake of understanding it, but you ponder on it because these things are to guide you or to be brought out and made view in your decisions of life. You think on these things so that you can do these things. Now, that 
raises it to a different level, but certainly it helps us to understand that there is purpose in this aspect of controlling our thoughts. It's not just the idea that I'll feel better in my life, but that it will direct me to a course of life, to a decision that I will make and how I will actually do things or not do things based upon what I put my mind on. So he says, think on these things. Think on what things? Well, in the context here, he begins with the word true. Think on these things that are true. The Greek terminology here is aletheis, which a word that means true as to fact is the most common word in Scripture that deals with the idea of true or truth, or is translated that way. It denotes the actuality of something, that something actually took place, that it's historically true, that it's experientially true, that it's true in the sense of what is being said as opposed to what is false. And what we recognize is in the use of this terminology in Scripture that it's always diametrically opposed by what is false or what is lie. That truth and error, as they're discussed in scriptures, oppose each other, intrinsically and exclusively oppose each other. That what is true cannot be false and what is false cannot be true. And that God is the source of truth. Now, as a source of truth, if God is the source of truth, and certainly the scriptures point that out, Jesus said in chapter 8, verse 26, He who sent me is true, Aletheis, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard from him. So what Jesus is saying about his ministry is that I've come to tell you the truth. And the one who sent me, he's the truth. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, says a few verses after that. Now, if God is the source of truth, and he's unchanging in his character, the truth itself is unchanging. It's not relative or subjective to a particular time period. The truth is that which is laid out by God and is true for this generation, is true for the previous generation, and is true for the next generation. When Jesus prayed about his disciples in John chapter 17, about sending them out into the world with the message of the gospel, he said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart from the world by giving them the truth and having them to understand the truth. And so Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, the apostles, to lead them into all truth so that they could preach the truth and so that the truth would be known. Now opposed to truth is error. And opposed to God and to Christ is Satan. And John chapter 8, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies and that he is the one who goes about deceiving. So we must put our minds on the things that God has revealed. And that's where, as I said before... The admonition of this passage to think on these things is rooted in the aspect of the revelation of God. And that's where Paul begins. Put your mind on things that God has revealed that are absolutely true, that are revealed as truth, and run everything through the grid of that, of the truth of God's Word. Is this true? Is this something that I should believe? Is this something that I should put my mind on? The first source of understanding whether... Something is true is to take it to God and to God's word. Now, in many ways, that opposes the culture that we live in. Our world values sometimes emotion more than truth and feelings more than truth. And I'm influenced sometimes in a culture where everyone is to, everyone presents truth or looks at truth as though it could exist in many different fronts and even in opposing ideas. And so that the so-called tolerance of our society assumes that everything must be accepted as equally true. And that challenges the Christian in the days in which we live. When he's going to place his mind on something and give attention to something and exclude other things. Because you can't think of everything. You have to exclude some things and pick out some things to think on. Paul says, as it begins, think on what is true. 
Truth is not determined by what society says. Truth is not determined by how I feel about it. Truth is not determined by whether or not it works or not. The utilitarian aspect of truth that approaches truth by this must be true because it makes me feel good, because it's something that makes me happy or accomplishes what I want to accomplish. All of those things are outside the venue of the true nature of reality. Is this actually true? God says some things are false. He makes that distinction, that dichotomy for me in the revelation of his word. And so a lie is a lie, and immorality is immorality. Covetousness is covetousness, and greed is greed. When and where? In every circumstance, those things you see remain true in every circumstance that I find myself in. So think on those things that are true. Look into God's Word. Run them through the grid and see whether or not these things are what God has said is true. He says, think on those things that are noble, your translation may say honorable or honest. The word here is simnos, and it means venerable. It means that which inspires reverence or all, dignified, worthy of respect. Paul uses the terminology in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 8 and 11, and then earlier even in verse 4 to talk about elders and deacons. That When you look to put, putting people in positions of serving or leadership within the church, they need to be individuals that are noble or that are honest that are honorable, that are worthy of respect. He uses the terminology as well, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, to talk about all Christians, that we should lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness, in some translations there say dignity. And I believe what this terminology, simnos, presents is the aspect of seriousness. Similar word is the aspect that's translated sober-mindedness. Christian is to be sober-minded in life. So you think on those things that are serious. The Christian approach to life is one of seriousness. We should take life seriously. There are a lot of folks who live life, I think, in a very trivial way. Not in the sense that they sit around telling jokes all the time, though there are some people that think that's what life is all about. But the idea that they don't really take it serious from the standpoint of one day to another. Or where life is going and what the direction of life is. They live for the moment and whatever the moment might bring. And whether or not it makes them happy or gives them pleasure. The Christian is to live life in a dignified way in the sense of living life in the light of eternity in the light of the reality of heaven and hell. To be sober-minded about it and to think on those things that are characterized by a seriousness of life. Some folks disdain that. They like to th- they they'd be willing to think on anything except something that really matters. And they spend their life looking at, at, at things that you see are trivial in that regard. <coughs> We tell a joke and we appreciate humor, but when it comes to putting our mind on something to the point of living life out, we need to focus on things that are serious and that are worthy of respect. Paul goes on to say, you think on things that are just. And the word dakaeos in the Greek language means equitable. It means, in essence, the balancing of the scales, that which is in character and act, justified or just. By implication, then, it has to do with the aspect of innocence. If someone is justified from being accused of a crime, it means they're pronounced innocent. Or in the moral sense that they are holy, either actually or relatively holy, in regards to that which could be accused of or that which they might be guilty of. And this particular word is the root of the word righteousness. And sometimes it's translated here by that which is right. Now that's a characteristic I think we can get a hold of in the scripture perspective. 
God is righteous. Jesus is righteous. The word is used of both God and Jesus to talk about the aspect of the moral quality of God. Not only does God not make any mistakes, but everything that God does is validated, is made just and equitable in the eyes not only of God but of men. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20, 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, John says, He is righteous. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So God does everything right, and those who serve him strive to do everything is right. Those who are born of him seek after righteousness. John goes on to write, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. So to think on what is just is the aspect here of not only that which is right as opposed to wrong, but that which is fair, that which is equitable, knowing that that's the way God treats everything. And so I put my mind on those things you see that are righteous by their nature, that are just in terms of my own action. Will I do this or will I not do this? Should I accept this or should I not accept this? What should I dwell on? Put your mind on things that are righteous. In the context of that, God becomes the model. Related to this, in the next terminology, Paul says, if there is anything or whatsoever is pure, think on this. The Greek term hagnos is a word that's used not only in the New Testament, but in the corresponding Septuagint version of the Old Testament. This is a very popular word in the sense that it is translated many times by the word sanctified or holy. The word refers to ceremonial purity in the Bible, meaning that there were procedures whereby a person would put themselves in a position by becoming ceremonially pure, they could come before God. But that was to reflect that as a metaphor of a, of a more profound spiritual purity, to describe the behavior of a person that's right in the sight of God, that does those things that are right so that they can come into the presence of God, that they're not tainted or defiled by some moral or sexual impurity. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3 through 5, Paul says, Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed or even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which is not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. See, Paul makes... Paul reflecting to us this dichotomy that God makes within his word. Not only between what is right and wrong, but between the destination of those who seek after purity and those who live in impurity. It's easy access, isn't it, to us, to the impurity of our world. How easy it is for us to be contaminated by the things that are around us. To put on, particularly in thinking, that which is impure. That might take a little bit more effort and certainly deviation for me to enter, enter into a place where immorality is practiced or impurity is found and to participate in it myself. It's much easier and certainly without, with much less regard to simply engage my mind in those things. And that's why point about the aspect if you could open up a person's brain and see their thoughts, you might have a different opinion about how really righteous they are because you see there is this secret place where we can entertain impure things and we can look at impure images and we can engage in impurity and no one knows but us and God. And that's what Paul's talking about here from the standpoint 
of thinking on things that are pure. It's a choice. Sometimes a very profound and difficult choice in our world today to put your mind on pure things and not impure things. The internet and pornography and impure speech and all the different outlets where these things can come into a person's mind all, you see, present to the Christian choice. He says, think on what is pure. Think on what is lovely. Prosphiles means friendly towards or acceptable. That which other people will easily embrace. It's the only place in the New Testament where this particular word occurs, and it means something that is agreeable, yet an attractive, yet in the context he's not talking about things that are agreeable or attractive to me or to the world. He's not using the term lovely as we might use it to describe you know, a sunset or uh, you know, a particular picture. Though the word could be used to describe those physical things, the aspect of loveliness here, or attractiveness, is connected with the aspect of purity in the eyes of God. Those things that, you see, make living the right Christian life attractive to ourselves and attractive to others. If we look at the opposite of that, what will we put our minds on that are that is unlovely? Again, it's not the aspect of something that is physically unlovely simply because it's, you see, it's ugly, but rather something that is morally repulsive or something that is harsh in terms of a moral sense. And that's easy to that's easy to put your mind on as well. In other words, there's a lot of access to things that are repulsive in our society, morally repulsive in our society, to the common mind. And the entertainment world around us thrives on that for the very sake of shock value. You know, there's so many television shows that start out, and I think, I might want to watch this. This might be something I'm interested in. You know, some crime show or solving a mystery, and the first scene is some body on the street and blood all over the place, and they're going to, they get the autopsy room and cut them open. They're going to show me everything. I want to see that. And I, sometimes I just turn it off simply for the aspect that that's not very lovely. I don't think I want to put my mind on that. Now that might be an example of the aspect of what's involved here, but certainly the aspect of moral, repulsive things that are always presented to us over and over and over again. And so easy it can be that which we put our minds on for the very same way, same reason that people present it to us because it's easy to turn your eyes that way. You know, there's a wreck in the other lane. You look... Do you look? The aspect then of looking, putting our minds on, is to focus our mind on those things that are lovely. And then he says, "What is of good report?" Euphemos here means um, sometimes translated admirable. It comes from the compound word. Uh, from which we get the word euphemism. You know what a euphemism is? Somebody would say a bad word, but you're not going to go that far, so you give it a good, you, you sort of give it a, a, a better, attractive word that means the same thing, but it's a euphemism. And that's what the aspect here is, that there are things that have a better look or that are given a better report. F.F. Bruce says it means those things that deserve deservedly enjoy a good reputation in life. Here are things that are good to look at. And I think we see that sometimes in the common news. You know, you watch the news and all you get is all this bad stuff. And you think, I wish somebody tell me something somebody does that's good. And sometimes that comes up. There'll be a news report of somebody that did something courageous or something, somebody that did something that was, that was kind to somebody else. And we appreciate that. Why? Because it's of a good report as opposed to always this bad report. 
Paul says those things ought to characterize our thinking, not just the aspect of what comes on the news, but what we focus our attention on. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. That it gives the brother a break in terms of the aspect of not immediately condemning him and being critical of him. Opposite of this are those things that are demeaning and denigrating, words and actions that are so prevalent in our culture that are not of a good report. You know, we live in a culture of criticism and outrage. People get caught up in this aspect of outrage where everything upsets them, everything gets them in a big fury. And sometimes we can get caught up in that and that that becomes that which predominates our thinking that we can't think of anything else except how upset we are at all the bad things in life. And that's divisive and spiritually destructive. And sometimes that becomes the very element of the politics of our day. Paul says, think on things that are of good report. Put your focus on things. Now the next two adjectives that Paul puts in the text are prefaced by the word if. If there is anything of virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, then think on these things. Now, sometimes the word if is used in a conditional sense, meaning that there might not be anything praiseworthy, there might not be anything virtuous. I'm not sure that that's the way this ought to be understood, just as the aspect of a condition of something that might not exist, but rather the, 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 the implication that those things do exist, and therefore you must search for them, or you must look for them. So is there anything else that is virtuous? Is there anything else that is praiseworthy? And so what Paul is doing here, he's summarizing the list. From truth to nobility, to the aspect of that which is lovely, and that which is of good report. If there's anything else that has virtue to it, then put that on the list and think on those things. The word virtuous, arete, literally means manliness or valor. And sometimes it's translated by the word courage. Or the other connotation of that is the aspect of excellence as opposed to that which is mediocre or that which does not, you see, excel in that regard. One commentator says that excellence or uh, erete in the scriptures means goodness of action. So it's that quality of a person's life that points to those things that give us worth. So we say this person is a good person as opposed to a bad person. What do we mean by that? Well, we're making a judgment, a characterization of the way that he lives and the actions that are in life. And Paul says here, that's virtuous, or that's the meaning of the word. If there is anything that takes place in a person's life that shows virtue, that shows goodness, then that needs to be thought upon. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, where Paul's listing, or Peter's listing this aspect of spiritual growth and talking about in the context the manner in which a person grows spiritually, it's the first thing on the list besides your faith. Add to your faith, your confidence in God, virtue, doing what is good. And having the courage to do what is good. We're called to look to God's word and define those things that are virtuous in life. Those things that are truly good as he has revealed them. And then he uses the word praiseworthy. Is there anything praiseworthy? Epihinos is the aspect of commendable. It's the word praise from the standpoint of that which deserves praise. It's a commendable thing. It's used to talk about God. God is praiseworthy in every element. Everything you look at about God, you see, is honorable and should be praised and extolled. But there's also praiseworthy in the the sense of people themselves, that there are things in people's life that need to be brought out that are good. 
and that are worthy of honor. And Christians need to focus on the character and the actions of God that are revealed in Scripture that make things praiseworthy or that define them as praiseworthy. So rather than concentrate on the faults or the weaknesses of others, we are putting our minds and setting our minds on things that are praiseworthy. Now sometimes that's hard for us as Christians. Sometimes that's, we go just the opposite of that. In the sense that when we look at unbelievers and we look at the world around us and we look at society around us, the very first thing that comes to our mind is all the things that are wrong with those folks and all the things that they do that are wrong and all the ways in which they violate even God's will and, or even the common decency of society. And we focus our attention on those things that make them that way. Not recognizing that even unbelieving people can be kind. Even those who are not Christians can be loving and caring about others. Can share the same values that I have about my family and even about my nation. And Christians ought to be individuals that can focus their attention on those things that are praiseworthy. That can find them and see them in society. Even among those you see who are not God's children. Because when I focus on and put praise on those things that ultimately are the character of God and those who do not care about the character of God it says something not about the glory of the person but rather about the glory of God to see those things and to praise them and to bring them out and to focus my attention on them is not to give glory to an unbelieving world but rather to give glory to the source of those things and that is the God who created them and the God that are all of those qualities and so I need to bring glory to God by thinking on those things and putting those things into my life Now, real quickly, how do I obey this command? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The word diligence there means effort. It's not going to come easy. This is not something that happens naturally to think on these things. You let your your thoughts go wherever they go. They're not going to go here. They're going to go someplace else. So you've got to watch over your thoughts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about this aspect of the task of the spiritual battle that we walk in the flesh and what we do not war according to the flesh. Our weapons of warfare are not carnal. We don't take up weapons to fight against evil. But the weapons that we do take up are mighty and tearing down strongholds of ideas. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your disobedience is fulfilled. What Paul's saying there is that our spiritual success in the struggle against sin and evil in this world is accomplished not on a battlefield. It's not accomplished in a political arena. It's accomplished in the thoughts of the mind. It's accomplished in our thinking. That ours and those who were brought to Christ must allow our thoughts to be captivated and brought into obedience of Jesus Christ. Our thoughts must be captured and put into submission to our Lord. And if that's our goal, if we are striving ourselves to obey God, to submit our lives to God, then our thoughts will be directed towards these things that are the character of God, that are lovely and that are true. Jesus also gives us some important information here when he talks about sin. And he says that sin doesn't begin just in the outward act, but rather sin begins in our thoughts. Or what he typifies here, as it is many times in scriptures, in our hearts, our inner person. Jesus said, that which proceeds out of a man, that which defiles him, far from, for, from, for, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, and murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, and sensuality, and envy, and slander, and pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You look out in society, what would you, li- what would you like to get rid of? 
all the violence and the murder and the thievery and the adultery and the immorality and the coveting and the wickedness and the greed. Get rid of, I like to get rid of all of that. Well, where does it start? Jesus says it starts in the mind. It starts in the thoughts of individuals. No one commits these outward sins without first thinking about them and sometimes thinking about them 10,000 times a day. So what do I have to do to keep sin out of my life and sin out of society? If I want to grow in godliness and to win my battle over the sin that's ever present before me. Paul says, you take those thoughts captive and put them in obedience to Christ. Jesus says, you deal with the heart. And you cut off the sources of evil that predominantly influence the heart. And so we've got to block the sources of sinful thinking if we're going to be successful in this battle against sin. We can't have a pure thought life without first ridding ourselves of the things that defile us from without and that would influence us. If we allow things in our lives to promote sensuality and greed and sexual impurity and crude language and violence and hatred and the love of self and all the things you see that we see in society that we do not like and ourselves that we do not like that are not pleasing to God, if we allow those things into our life, then we can't expect anything other than that they're going to come out of our life and lives of others. You will not be a godly person, and I cannot be a godly person if I don't control the TV, the videos, the movies, the music, the magazines, the books, all the other sources where these things would come in and influence my life. If I'm not serious about that, if I don't take that seriously, I have very little chance of ever spiritually growing or being a person that God would want me to be. And so we need to absorb God's word. And this goes back to where we started. Think on these things means think on his things. Philippians 4.8 emphasizes the positive in the sense that it's not just a matter of avoiding bad thoughts, but rather it's being joyful and peaceful and contented and holy people by putting into my thought processes those things that are positively God. And they originate in his word. So you've got to spend some time in the Bible, don't we? We have to read it. We have to absorb it. Saturate our mind with what God says. You cannot by be influenced by what you do not know. And that's why Satan's trying to influence you with all this other stuff. Because he knows that too. So we put our minds on the things that are God. Memorizing Scripture, putting it into our heart so that when the Word of God is in our heart and Satan goes to tempt us, we can, like Jesus does in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, say, no, it's written. These are the things that are in my mind. These are the things you see that I'm meditating upon. These are the things that I'm thinking about so that I can keep myself from sinning against God and I can live a rightful life. Philippians chapter, uh, the, the Psalm chapter 1 in verse 1. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of God, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. God makes pretty profound promises there, doesn't he? And they're based upon my willingness to focus my thoughts on the Word of God. Who is the man that's blessed? Who is the man who doesn't do what's wrong? He doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scornful. Well, what does he do positively? He meditates on the Word of God. That's the positive aspect of it. He puts his mind on God's Word. Someone said, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. 
You're not what you think you are. But what you think, that's who you are. Oh, if someone just opened up our brain and looked in. One final word, I'm done. There is someone who can open up your brain and look in. God doesn't miss anything that goes across our feeble minds even 10,000 times a day. He sees it all. If you're ever Christian, if you're a Christian, you have within you the power to obey the commandment and think on these things. As challenging as it may seem, as difficult as it may seem in our daily lives, you can change the course of your life by changing what you think on, what you meditate on. By remembering that all that's best in this world, everything that Paul's mentioned in those adjectives is found in a single person. It's not me and it's not you. But it is Jesus. He is the truth. He is the most noble Son of God. He is the standard of righteousness. He is the fountain of purity. He is altogether lovely and attractive. He is the admirable Savior. He is the source of all virtue. And He is worthy of all praise. You put your mind on Christ. And you can think on these things. Are you mindful of Jesus and what He's done for you and the sacrifice that He's made in your behalf? We want to invite you to become a Christian. But the first look is not at us. It's not at the church. It's not even the commandment of God that you need to respond to the gospel. The first look is at Jesus Himself. All that He is, all that He was, and all that He's done. Think on Him and be obedient to His will. Can we help you do that while we stand and while we sing?